0: to be in the book of John chapter 19. There's a Bible there in front of you. You would open that up and turn into John 19. We're going to look at verses 28 through 30 this morning. That can be found on page 906 in that pew Bible in front of you. And we're going to consider this morning the cross for a few minutes. And I'm very excited that we are considering the cross here at Christmas. John 19. We believe that the Bible is God's word, so my job is to explain God's word to you, and what is it saying, and what is it about, and, and what does it have to do with you? That's, that's, that's the goal of this time here. We began the book of Proverbs this morning in Sunday school, so I want to begin the sermon with a proverb. This one doesn't come from God's word, but you've probably heard the saying, a mother's work is never done. Right? A mother's work is never done. I, I couldn't... Find the source for that, but there is an older rhyme that goes Man may work from son to son, but a woman's work is never done. As the husband of a hardworking homeschooling woman, I can confirm the truth of that. A woman's work is never done, or a mother's work is never finished. There's always another meal to be made, more clothes to be washed, another diaper to be changed. Estimates vary. Let's take the middle number. Uh, a child will go through about 6,000 diapers before they are potty trained. Five kids. Low <laughs> math here. That's 30,000 diapers. Let's say I've changed 10% of those diapers. Now, I think it's more than that. I think it's probably more. You can I didn't ask my wife. You can ask her if you want. I think I've done more than that, but let's go that low number. That's still 3,000 diapers that I have changed. That is a lot of diapers. Not bad. But that's 27,000 diapers that Melissa has changed. A mother's work is never finished. And that is very true. There's no more important, no more difficult work in the world, the giving, sustaining, and shaping of life and of souls. A mother's work is never finished. But I want to expand on that a bit this morning, and I want to argue that no man's work and no woman's work is ever finished or at least no fallen, unforgiven man's work is ever finished. What do I mean? Let's start with a consideration of guilt. I want to talk about guilt for a second. You know that you have it. You know that you feel it. There was an important article written a few years ago by a Dr. Wilfred MacLay, He's a history professor. And the article is titled, The Strange Persistence of Guilt. It begins like this, we find ourselves in the tightening grip of a paradox, it is the strange persistence of guilt as a psychological force in modern life. If anything, the word persistence understates the matter. Guilt has not merely lingered, it has grown into an ever more powerful and pervasive element in the life of the contemporary West. Guilt growing. We talked a few weeks ago about uh, this crazy philosopher named Friedrich Nietzsche. You don't need to know about him. Don't worry if you've never heard of him. But this guy basically argued that now that God was dead, now that we had realized that God was dead, now that we had cast off his oppressive authority, the guilt that we all felt as a result of this silly belief in this imagined God, the guilt would fade away and then we would be free to construct our own reality and our own morality with abandon, without worry, without fear, without guilt. We could be gods. We could be super men. You could follow your heart, live your truth, you be you, and not let anyone tell you who to be or what to do, and you would find freedom and fulfillment and happiness and health. Physically, mentally, emotionally, socially. Guilt would be gone. Guilt would be finished. So you may have never heard of Nietzsche, but he is one of the chief architects of our Disney-fied follow-your-heart culture. And our world has done what he said we should do. We have cast off all restraint. We've rejected all external authority. We have asserted ourselves as the only authority and meaning and purpose in life. And yet, the guilt remains. The guilt grows and strangely persists. Why is that? Why do we all feel guilty all the time? And if you say that you don't feel guilty, you are guilty of lying. We are comfortable. We are prosperous. We are the safest, healthiest, most technologically advanced culture ever. Technology gives power. With great power comes great responsibility. Uncle Ben, obviously. And responsibility actually leads to guilt Maybe you give a little money to some cause. You could have given more. You are aware of the great immigration problem in our city. You are confronted with the great homelessness problem in our city every day. What are you doing about it? It's never enough. You're confronted with all kinds of problems out there. You're not doing enough. If you're honest, you're confronted with all kinds of problems in here. You can't do enough. Even though we're all doing the very thing we've been told to do, to follow our hearts, the guilt is never finished. Why is that? And what, if anything, can be done about your guilt? Good news. We have before us this morning the text in which the one thing that could be done about the guilt is done, is finished. As we have before us this morning Christ's final finished words on the cross the choir is about to sing the good news of the gospel focusing on the birth of Jesus Christ I am going to first preach the good news of the gospel focusing on the death of Jesus Christ for this is why he was born he was born to die and what does that death do it finishes it is finished this is the one thing that you need Jesus Christ, his person and his work. This is the one thing I need. This is the only solution to my guilt problem. So who is this Jesus really? And what is he doing on that cross? Well, let's see. We're going to focus on two things this morning. I want you to see that Christ is fulfilling and Christ is finishing. He's fulfilling and he's finishing. Can you ever be finished? Can you ever really rest? Can anything be done about your guilt? Your only hope is that all is fulfilled and finished in Christ. And good news, it is. So let me read this text for you. I'm gonna read for you from God's Word. We believe this actually happened. This was an actual man, and these are actual events. This is this is history. And so I want you to pay attention and read this as if it was history. I'm gonna start reading at the end of verse 16, just to kind of get us into our text to set the context. But then we're gonna focus our sermon on verses 28 through 30. But let me read for you from God's word, John chapter 19, starting at the end of verse 16. Please pay attention. Because this is what God wants to say to you today. So they took Jesus, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place uh, called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple, whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. If you would please bow with me. I'm going to begin this time first with a, with a word of prayer. Father, thank you for your grace. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the choir and all their hard work. For everyone who has come to, to encourage them uh, to be edified by good song. Father, first and foremost, we want to be here because you are good and you are worthy of worship. Father, we want to proclaim Jesus Christ through song. I want to proclaim Jesus Christ through words. So I pray that you would help me to do this now in this time. Um, Father, we are all easily distracted. We are all easily focused on all kinds of things. Help us just for the next few minutes to be focused on Jesus Christ. Father, show us who he is. Show us what he has done. Show us how he is the solution to all that ails us. We pray that you would even use this time to draw someone in this room to life and to Christ. We ask and we pray this in his name. Amen. Point number one, we see that Jesus is fulfilling. Look at verse 28. After this, John writes, after what? Well, after all that I just read for you and all that we considered last week with the crucifixion of the Christ. We preach Christ crucified. That's what we are all about here at Woodside Community Church. Why is that? Well, it's because of who Christ is and because of what this Christ has done. We have spent three years now considering this Christ from this gospel of John. And gospel is a word that just means good news. This is the good news of Jesus Christ. And it's Christmas. It's the most wonderful time of the year with the kids jingle belling and everyone telling you be of good cheer good news good cheer good presence that's what christmas is supposedly all about so why are we here this morning talking about death how can death be good news of great joy we'll go back to verse 28 after this jesus stop that's how here's the most important word of our text It's this person, and it's the identity of this person. Jesus is everything. Everything hinges and hangs on him. How can we know that? Keep reading. Back to verse 28. We're going to go word by word. I'm going to drive you crazy. After this, Jesus knowing. Stop. Okay, That's pretty amazing. Knowing all that's going on here. The truth that Jesus is knowing that all was now finished is huge. Because remember, what's been going on here? The one on whom everything hangs is currently hanging on a tree, on a cross. The physical agonies of crucifixion are hard to comprehend. Jesus has been up all night. He has been beaten. He has been mocked. He has been whipped twice. He has been humiliated. A heavy piece of wood has been laid on him. Then he has been laid on that wood, nailed to that wood, and then strung up naked in the sky to hang, suffer, and die experiencing all of that and more, he's still knowing all that was now finished. Again and again, one of the things that John, the author of this book, wants to communicate to us is that the complete control of this man, Jesus Christ, even on the cross. We saw this back in chapter 18, verse 4. Before all this began, all the pain and suffering and shame and death, it says, then Jesus, knowing All that would happen to him came forward. So he goes forward to these soldiers, the men that he knows are going to arrest him and torture him and kill him. Jesus knows all and Jesus controls all because Jesus claims to be the king of all. I want you to pay attention during the cantata here in a moment. The choir is going to sing about this son, this this one to be born for a throne To be king. And kings, they rule and they reign. Kings have power and authority. And it is this issue, the the kingship of the Christ, that stands at the center of this, this whole trial. It's the charge for which they kill him. We read it in verse 19. There's an inscription above the cross that says, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. And yet here he is hanging on a cross, naked, suffering, moments away from death. Kings rule and reign. Kings have power and authority. Christ claims to be the king of kings, but the king is dying. Keep reading. Back to verse 28 again. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture stop. A couple of things. You've probably already noticed and maybe already getting annoyed by how many times I've already said, look at verse 28, look at verse 28, look at verse 28, and back to it again and again. Why am I doing that? Again, it's to annoy you, in part. But kidding. Actually, I'm hopefully going, I'm doing it to draw your attention to what John is drawing your attention to. Look at it again. All of this is to fulfill scripture. Why am I up here? Why are we doing this? Don't we all just want to get to the music? Sure. But I'm up here and doing this to fulfill what I have been called to do as a minister of the gospel. 1 Timothy 4.13, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. 2 Timothy 4.2, preach the word. Why? Hebrews 4.12. Because this word is living and active, sharper than any two-edged This is the word that when you read, you begin to understand it's actually the thing that's been reading you. This word works. It does something. And it starts uh, by saying something. What does this word say? What is this whole thing about all 1,189 chapters of the Bible? It's all about this man, Jesus, who is the Christ, the Son of God. This whole thing is about who who he is and what he is doing and why. Our family is is memorizing a catechism. A catechism is just a short question and answer. There's a question and then it's an answer summarizing some truth from God's word. Question three of the Westminster Shorter Catechism says, what does the Bible primarily teach? Answer, the Bible primarily teaches what man must believe about God and what God requires of man. The Bible is all about God. It's about who he is. It's not first about you, it's not about me, it's about him. The whole thing is written to reveal God to you. Here is who God is, here's what he is like. And the whole Bible reveals, what the whole Bible reveals about God is that he is the creator of all. And that means that he is the king over all. He has all power and he has all authority. He is God, we are not. He made us. And, this is important, he made us for a purpose. You have a telos. I'm just trying to impress you. It's a fancy word. T-E-L-O-S. It's a Greek word. It just means purpose. It means goal or end. You were designed in a certain way for a certain purpose. And we all implicitly understand that design and purpose are important. We've all got these thousand dollar devices in our pockets, right? They were designed for a purpose. Now actually, they were designed to capture and keep and commodify your attention. So when you waste your life on social media, they've tricked you into making money off of you and you're doing exactly what the big companies want you to do, but let's set that aside for now. Let's, let's ignore that, I won't go on a, a tirade. But we understand that the phone works only according to its design. We have delicious lunch coming up. Maybe Joe made one of his delicious soups. Where are you, Joe? Did you make a soup, Joe? I don't know where Joe is. I can't find him. But say you were to go into the kitchen and you were to put your smartphone on top of that massive industrial stove and crank up that burner to high. And you pour chicken broth on it, throw some noodles on it, some chicken, some quail eggs. There's always quail eggs, it seems, in the soup. But obviously destroy your phone. It's not a cooking pot. That's not its telos. That's not its design, its purpose. And that is such a stupid illustration on purpose. It makes no sense. No one would ever try to use a phone as a pot. That would be completely irrational and foolish and pointless. And yet, that is, of course, exactly what we have all done with our lives something actually far more irrational and foolish and pointless. We have all done far worse in our sin. God created us, and he designed you with a specific purpose in mind, and that purpose is him. That purpose is to know him and to be known by him. That, person, that purpose is to love him and to be loved by him. He is the God of life. Our life, then, is entirely bound up in him. It is only found in relationship with with God. And yet, every single one of us has said no to him and has rejected him. We have all sought to live our lives without reference to him. We have all thrown our phones on the burner. We have all sought to be God ourselves, and the Bible calls this Sin, And I will waste no time making a defense for the biblical doctrine of sin. I don't need to do it. Just look out there. Read the news. Just look in here. Read your heart. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death. Because sin is the rebellion against uh, and rejection of the God who is life, right? You reject life, you're obviously only left with death. And that is why that guilt persists and never goes away. It's because you are guilty. Because I am guilty. There is a God before whom we all stand condemned. A God that we have all hated and rejected. A God who is so gloriously good and beautiful and loving that there is nothing more evil than hating and rejecting this God. There is nothing more deserving of condemnation. And so this God, creator, and king who is perfectly good is also then perfectly just and he must do something about sin and evil. We all want crimes punished. We all want wrongs made right. We all want justice. What if the most unjust thing that has ever happened is our rejection and denial of this God who is life? That's why we're here. That's why Christ is on this cross. That's why the King is strung up to die. He is fulfilling all. All the promises and prophecies of the Old Testament telling us who God is in his holiness, who we are in our sin, but also then what God himself was going to do about our sin problem. Here's what he's going to do. In some way, it has to do with this Christ on this cross. Here's what everything has been pointing to. Everything that God has been promising was about this moment Look at verse 28 again, because this is really neat. All of this fulfilling, all of scripture, even this, Jesus says, hanging in there on the cross, I thirst. That's wonderful. Even the thirsting is a fulfilling. That's probably coming from Psalm 69, verse 21. The verse isn't quoted specifically, but it's referenced, it's probably suggesting that this this is an allusion to the whole of Psalm 69, which is about this, this suffering righteous one. John uses this psalm a number of times. So here is this Christ who is righteous, who is who we're trying to figure out who this Christ is. Here he is suffering and thirsting. So the thirsting in fulfillment of Scripture does a few things. It, it demonstrates the humanity of Christ. He is, he is man. He's fully man. This is a normal response to suffering on a cross. This further demonstrates the absolute control of Christ, fulfilling scripture in even the tiniest of details, but this is even bigger and better than that. I don't have time to go through it all, but water is a very important theme throughout John's gospel. Chapter 1, the John who baptizes with water preaches the one who will baptize with the spirit. Chapter 2, the first sign is water to wine. Chapter 3, you must be born again unless one is born of water and spirit He cannot enter the kingdom. Listen to what Jesus says in John 4, 13. Woman at the well. Talking about the water in the well. Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Chapter 5, he heals at a pool of water. Chapter 6, he walks on water. Chapter 7, 37, he says if anyone thirsts, Let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Chapter nine, Jesus heals the man born blind through his washing in the water of the pool of Siloam. Chapter 13, Jesus pours water in a basin and washes the disciples' feet. And I could keep going, I've missed some. Water, water everywhere, nor any drop to drink. Samuel Taylor Coleridge. Water, water everywhere, and not a drop to drink, as it's often put. It's from the rhyme of the ancient mariner. Here's a suffering sailor. He's adrift at sea. He's surrounded by water. He gains no benefit from that water. He cannot use it. It cannot quench his thirst. He's surrounded by water, yet there's nothing that can satisfy him. And so he thirsts. It's a powerful sensation and a powerful metaphor. What do you thirst for? Honestly, what do you desire? We just read Psalm 63.1. David says, oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. The water is life. We thirst for that which is life. David understands that God is life. And so David thirsts for that which is God. And yet here, wonder of wonders is the son of David, who is the son of God. God himself come in the flesh. The one who has promised whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The one who says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. The one who claims to be the only one who can quench and satisfy your spiritual thirst. He himself cries out, I thirst. Why thirst? To fulfill all scripture. To fulfill all scripture and in fulfilling all to finish all. Go back to the text. I will be brief. I will finish. But you must see this. We must finish with this. We've already seen it twice. Scripture uses repetition to tell you what the point of a text is about. Our word is used twice in verse 28. Knowing that all was now finished, Jesus said to fulfill. Look up at verse 24. There we saw the casting of lots of clothes to fulfill the scripture. That's a different word. John doesn't use that word here. John uses this word, teleao, which is our same word, telos, purpose, goal, end, finished. Three times in our text, he uses this word, finished. In verse 29, they take the sour wine. This is the the cheap stuff, the soldier's wine. They give Jesus some Before the crucifixion, he has rejected the anesthetizing wine. Now, knowing that all was finished, he accepts the thirst-quenching wine. Why? For the cry. For verse 30. Here it is. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. As it has been said before, these are the greatest words ever uttered by the greatest man who has ever lived it is finished it's only one word in the greek and it's our telos word same word It's the telos word in the perfect tense this is literally a perfect word but a perfect tense is for a past action that has been completed but it has ongoing continuing present effects and results to telestai that's the cry from the cross. And it's not just finished as over, but it's finished as completed, finished as accomplished. John 17:4, I glorified you on earth having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Same word. And what is the work that Christ has accomplished? John 17:2. The Father has given the Son authority to give eternal life. That's the work. Life is the work. And death is the means of that work. Death is how the Christ who is life accomplished the work of giving life. We've seen our telos. We were designed for life in and with God. We've seen our treachery. Sin uh, separates us from life in and with God. The wages of such sin is death. The wage that justice demands be paid is death. And here it is. Here's what's happening in our text. God himself is paying our wage for our sin by God himself in Christ dying our death. Jesus in my place. That's the gospel. Jesus, the Christ, the son of God, is my substitute. He is there taking my sin, taking my death, taking my place. Do you know the weight and the wages of your sin? Have you felt it and been crushed by it? That's why the guilt is there. There's no other explanation for why every person who has ever lived experiences crushing guilt except that there is a holy God and judge before whom we will all one day stand and we'll all give an account of all of our life. And his standard is perfection. You must be holy. You must be perfectly holy. To be with the perfectly holy God. And you're not. And I'm not. But Jesus the Christ, the Son of God, is. And his work is to do all that is required to pay for all of my sin. And listen, it's a lot. It's a lot of sin. You would never listen to me if you knew my heart, if you knew my past. If you could see and know every single sinful thought, word, and deed, God does see and know every sinful thought, word, and deed. And the glorious good news of the gospel is that he takes all of it and he places it on Christ. And he crushes him for it. He kills him for it, for my sin. And so when we come to this holiest and happiest of moments and he cries out triumphantly, it is finished, it is everything. That it, there there are no words. It's an old preacher, Charles Spurgeon, who says it would need all the other words that were ever spoken or ever can be spoken to explain this one word. It is altogether immeasurable. It is high. I cannot attain it. It is deep. I cannot fathom it. It is finished, accomplished, completed. I cannot do this justice. All the promises and prophecies, all the making of the Father known, all the accomplishing of his will, all the saving of his people, all the sin and death, it is finished. My favorite psalm is 103, and it only makes sense in light of this. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. Because he is dealing right here on the cross with Christ according to our sins and repaying him according to our iniquities. And then he cries out, it is finished. Here's the solution to your guilt. This is the only solution to your work which is never finished. Fallen man's work is never finished. But forgiven man's work is. Because the son of man, his work, is finished. There's one tradition in Buddhism that claims that the Buddha's last and dying words were strive without ceasing. How much better are the dying words of the Christ? It is finished. The whole way of the world is due. The way of the word is it's, it's done. There are only ultimately two ways to live, two philosophies, two religions. Everyone else tells you what you must do. Only the gospel tells you what God has done for you. And so we invite you and encourage you this morning to believe and receive the finished work of Christ. It is finished. Turn away from your sin and yourself and all your attempts to prove and justify yourself and trust in the one who has already done everything for you. One of the greatest lines ever penned by man, Augustine, 1,600 years ago, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Do you have a restless striving, work-never-finished heart? Then come to the Christ and find rest for your soul. Come to the work is finished for you, Christ. Grace cancels guilt. Grace kills guilt. His finished is our freedom. His finished is our beginning. As you listen to the choir's beautiful music, please consider the beautiful Christ who they are singing about. It is finished. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ. We thank you for your perfect plan. We thank you for the good news of what you have done to solve the sin problem that we have created. We thank you for grace. Father, we could not save ourselves. We owed you death for our sin, but you have provided the very death that we owed in your son, Jesus Christ. Father, may we delight in him and rejoice in him and be glad in him. May the songs that are about to be sung glorify you and make his goodness and his beauty and his grace clear. May you use these songs to draw sinners to Jesus, who is life. We ask and pray all this in his name. Amen.